0: Well, everyone, welcome. Uh, It's my pleasure to uh, introduce a session of the Herbert Smith Freehills Election Federal Election Series podcast. And today, uh, we're extremely uh, lucky to have uh, joining us today as our guests my colleague Lucy Boyd from the Herbert Smith Freehills Employment Team. Welcome, Lucy. And uh, my, I suppose I could say, colleague Josh Bornstein, who's a principal at Morris Blackburn, uh, primarily working in well as an employment lawyer but Josh uh, it seems to me that you're acting in every high profile place uh for uh, I'll call them victims you might use another term of sexual harassment and bullying so tell us a little bit about about that before we might get in some of the nuts and bolts on the respective work report and and how you ended up working for uh you know, clients as diverse as uh, associates to high court judges as justices and Supreme Court judges and and elsewhere? How did all that happen?
1: Uh, it's a fascinating um, question because in some ways um, I grew up with a very strong sense that you had to stand up to bullies and my parents were very left-wing but and I couldn't understand a lot of the, the theory of uh, left-wing politics but um the dense theory and the books about it, but uh, I was always instilled in me that you got to look after the underdog, and it's a it's an issue that I still feel viscerally. Unfortunately, it's still there <laughs> very strongly in my um, in my psyche or my body or something. And uh, throughout my career, um, I have worked with people who've been bullied or sexually harassed, but um, n- Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, uh, I got to the point of getting a bit sick and tired of dealing with really damaged victims of workplace bullying, um, because their legal options were pretty terrible and really slow and reactive. The workers' compensation system was the main was the main um, avenue at that time, and uh, sometimes. They would be in court eight years after the event, which I thought was a disaster for the employer, for the employee, for for every everything. Um, and I worked out that the, the health and safety regulators weren't really pursuing bullying cases. Um, and I think at some point I just decided I'd start to speak out about it. And if you like, campaign for legal reform Um And I remember a QC saying to me, but you can't make bullying illegal. How would you define it? (laughs) So I had those initial conversations, but ultimately went knocking on the doors of politicians, including Bill Shorten and Julia Gillard, particularly Julia Gillard, who was very um, supportive. And lo and behold, um, there was an inquiry in Parliament. Um, There were some calls for reform by lawyers at the Law Institute, and ultimately a new anti-bullying law came into effect. Um, And so that, uh, I think, was part of my experience. Um, I've always liked um, having a mixture of interesting cases, and I'd done for many years uh, the big industrial cases. And as part of this, I think I started to branch out just naturally into mixing it up more and doing both union work and individual employment matters and um, and I still get an amazing amount of satisfaction out of um, having that mixture of, of work and sitting down with an individual client, plotting a course for them and then executing and hopefully getting a good outcome. If that works, I get an enormous buzz. It's ridiculous.
0: Josh, I think um, you and I both started our careers doing heavy-duty IR work, and it's interesting yes. how uh, not only our careers evolved but also how the work has changed in um, yes. the last 10, 15 years and the emphasis on individual uh, resolving individual grievances. Yes. Uh, I suppose going to the heart of cultures, cultures uh, at the workplaces has fundamentally changed, and and it's I've got so many stories. You mentioned your mother before, and, yes, I've, yep. I felt her scars probably as much as you have when I appeared before her when she yep. was a, a member of the Victorian Commission. But uh, I, I was interested, you talked about the, the bullying laws, and, of course, they were, you know, a, a really significant reform nationally. Uh, I, I still hear mixed reports of that, and I suppose you can expect that where I come from... Um, yeah. And, and many of our clients, we see many, we investigate for our clients many instances yep. of bullying and, yep. and improper behaviour. And I, I certainly, again, from my perspective, see a much greater desire from businesses uh, to want to resolve these issues because they yep. know it's not good for, for any part of their business to have have people behaving aberrantly. Yep. Uh, but on the same uh, on the same hand, we see a lot of. You know, really dodgy claims. We
1: really yeah. Cases which aren't so which easy. aren't strong. Yeah.
0: It's so easy to make a claim. I've been bullied. Yep. Uh, and I, I, you know, speaking to a, a senior member of the commission just last week, and, and and talking about his view on these things, and and you know, you know, the, they are overblown, overdone. You know. Yep. Individual grievances gone gone crazy. Yep. without any substantive impact. So I'll I, I draw the segue. Do you, do you acknowledge that problem with that jurisdiction? And t- taking the next point, can you see if we entrench uh, legislative reform in relation to sexual harassment, that we might see any of those problems manifest
1: themselves? Okay, so I've got a lot of responses to that um, question. Uh, my experience is a little bit different because we're very careful about doing due diligence on our cases, making sure when I, when I write to you on behalf of a client, I'm conscious that you're going to do due diligence on my case. And if I keep writing to you with cases which are dodgy or um, cases that lack merit, ultimately my letterhead's not going to carry much weight. I don't like that, <laughs> I actually like our head to be be um, considered seriously. And I don't like running marginal cases or weak cases, or sometimes you get instructed to, to pursue a case which you, where you say to the client, I don't think this is gonna win, um, I think it's gonna cost more than it's going to be uh, of any value to you, you discourage them. Once in a blue moon, they say, go ahead anyway. Okay, so that happens. Um, so I don't get to see a lot of the, the cases that lack merit because we have a process which means we don't really deal with those cases um, 98% of the time. Um, now, having said that, my experience of the jurisdiction is has been enormously positive. Why? Because I get the sense your clients are much more proactive, much more conscious of the problem, much more keen to address it, whether it's genuine or not genuine, they address it one way or the other than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Um, it's much there's a much greater consciousness of the harm bullying can cause to mental health, and um, and then that costs the bottom line. That's that there's a big cost economically, whether it's borne by the individual, the corporation, or the taxpayer. There's a very big cost. Uh, in terms of uh, insurance, ex- wages, expenses, productivity loss, et cetera. So there's an economic piece that everyone is now across, but there's also, I think, a much better understanding of mental health and the harm that bullying can do to mental health. So I see it as a net positive. Um, the commission vets, a, you know, has a vetting process itself, so it does some due diligence to try and ensure that, Um, cases which have no uh, merit aren't pursued. It's probably not, there's no guarantee about that, but I think it does a lot of work behind the scenes to to, um, try and uh, vet cases. Um, And the other thing that um, you might want to comment on is uh, in the wake of those new laws, I saw for the first time a major corporation, Orica, um, make an announcement Publicly, that uh, it's one of its senior executives may have been a CEO, may have been another senior executive, was stepping back because there'd been complaints about the way in which he had interacted with others. And um, now that was pretty revolutionary because no one ever um, had has done that before, really. Mm. Uh, it's often denied, or it's or it's it's not transparent, hidden. Um, and that still goes on. But but increasingly, as we're now seeing with sexual harassment, there's a much greater willingness for um, people to talk about mental health, to people to talk about harm to mental health, and to people to ex- accept there are problems in all sorts of workplaces and to start to be more open about it.
0: Well, I mean, I, I comment on that because I, I, I really do agree. I mean, in, in that sense, I mean, I can criticise the the uh, the unnecessary agitation of you know cases lacking in substance and, and there are too many of those but yeah. the, the, the fact that it's in the public consciousness and the fact that it's entrenched within the legislation and there's an you know an obligation to you know not engage in repeated bullying behavior risk to health and safety and all of those things the things we would yep. define what bullying was quite reasonably pretty easily by the way exactly um, <laughs> our, our our experience here from our client, I mean, we deal with this all the time. And, yeah. and you know, I, I expect to say this about our clients, we, we love and adore, but they really put in a lot of effort um, yeah. in this space. And they are genuinely upset and concerned if there is some aberrant behaviour that, that's yeah. happening um, mm-hmm. outside. But the question really is, um, do you think repeating that same jurisdiction in the federal sphere? So I'm kind of turning Lucy, you might want to comment on this. On, on, the, on, on the Respect at Work report, is going to deliver the same kind of positive outcomes, or is it going to be? Because you know, there's criticism about, you know, from at least from the the, the right of politics about the creation of the so-called positive duty, which equates to kind of the, the health and safety duty um, that currently exists, and that's seen as being over um, overreach in some respects. So I'm, I'm interested in how you see that. Because that's going to be one of the key election issues
1: on this in this space, right? Sure, it will be a key election issue, and we should note at this point that um, already uh, a similar jurisdiction now exists in the Commission to make anti-sexual mm. harassment orders. Yeah, and um, just in passing, I'm not sure that's going to work nearly as well as the anti-bullying jurisdiction, simply because, at least my experience is that. There's often a long timeline before women come forward. Now, that may be changing, but um, that jurisdiction in the commission is particularly useful about getting a quick quick access to an external body to try and address a problem and being much more proactive. So it took, it took the old workers' compensation paradigm and turned it on its head and said, here's a quick access for employees in trouble. Now, will women come forward? I don't know. That's yeah. so. That's a that's a question mark for me at the moment.
2: That's I, I would agree with that, Josh, because I think what came out one of the findings that came out from the Respect to Work the surveys that they do um, was that there's a real problem with reporting when it comes to sexual harassment. I
1: think
2: Absolutely. it was 17% of um, claims brought forward, and, and the research suggests that the reason for that is because we have a reactive system where the the victim um, has to make a claim, um, which is where this um, proposed reform of a positive duty comes in. So yes. I'd I'd be interested in your thoughts from your experience working um, on the other side of these sort of cases. Um, do you are you supportive of the positive duty? Do you think the respect at work, um, the other recommendations which aren't Um, haven't yet been actioned do you think they go far enough and and will we see change in this area
1: uh, we're seeing change it may not necessarily feel like it all the time but I think we are seeing change Um, I debated this with uh, a journalist Jess Hill and um, because sometimes I can get a bit jaundiced because I always see the worst of the worst and so I've got a very unlike you where you get to see your your corporations doing wonderful things I don't People don't come to me and say, "Do you realise BHP is doing some fantastic, <laughs> some fantastic work here?" I don't get any of those stories. I have a very um, skewed um, selection of what I'm presented with in terms of workplace experience. Um, now, to come to the the central uh, debate about the positive duty, do I support it? Yes, I think it'll be a good idea. Um, I think. Uh, I mean. Let's, let's uh, consider it from a different point of view. Some of the best legal work I've ever done is because I've taken a proactive approach rather than a defensive approach and just I've suggested we go on the front foot and attack a problem proactively, sensibly and proactively and strategically. Um, this uh, this recommendation comes in the face of, of 40 or 50 years of laws prohibiting sexual harassment? Um, when did when did good workplace policies come in? 20, 25 years ago? Um, probably 20 years ago. Uh, we've had when 20, we
0: started working, Josh, that's when it all started. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, uh, so, so we've had concerted efforts, well-intentioned concerted efforts to try and address it, but um, my sense is they haven't worked very well um and that's because it's a deeply ingrained structural problem so do i think uh, a positive duty is part of the solution yes do i think it is a nirvana no we will need to address this problem from a range of different uh, angles to recognize it's embedded in the structure of our society i wear an employer's hat as well as a employee and union advocate hat as well um i as an employer, I'm only too well aware that people don't come to work, men don't come to work and just suddenly decide they're going to be sexual harassers, right? We have, uh, we need to have an approach that goes from the cradle to the grave that looks at how to, to improve the issues of gender okay. equality, right? And some of that's legal reform. Some of that's cultural reform, some of that's educational reform, and we probably need to experiment across a range of different measures. I think um, if you, if you uh, really are serious about um, gender equality, particularly in the workplace, then you probably, one of the key places you've got to start, I think, is to try and ensure uh, that, for example, men take um, a serious amount of paternity leave. When kids are born, right? Uh, that's, I think, that's probably going to have the biggest impact on gender inequality, both in the workplace and outside the workplace, um, and might even might even exceed the uh, what's achieved by the Respect at Work key recommendation.
0: You know, Josh, uh, I I I read the uh, I think the Morris Blackburn Enterprise Agreement where you've enhanced your. Uh, Yes. yes. It's, they're not as good as the Herbert Smith Freehills uh, leave <laughs> benefits, by the <all laughs> way, just, just as a bit of a reminder. Um, but actually, uh, one of the changes we've also done in our business is, is to expand. Uh, we, we, we're, we're removing the distinction uh, yes. between primary carer, non-primary carer, male or female, you get the damn leave. And, and the point is now to encourage the men to be able to take it. I, I mean, I think we all agree because when we look at yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, and and you know clearly you worked in the Dyson Hayden matter um, yes. and the Peter Vickery matter in the Victorian Supreme Court as well, and and I'm just wondering whether they're aberrations. I mean, are you dealing with uh, you know you've kind of got these esteemed you know legal figures who are you know acting in fairly solitary roles where there's the opportunity for men uh, of power to behave really badly in those circumstances. But if we if we take and, and by the way, quite quite very senior men um, as well, but if you take that out and if we educate people is is are they isolated examples in your experience or are you seeing claimants coming from, you know, modern uh, IT, high-tech workplaces uh, as well? I mean, where where do you see the essence
1: uh, essence of the problem originating? I don't think there's a um, clear answer to that. And Lucy will say to you one of the reasons is uh, it's so underreported. What I do think... So I've given up trying to say, to try and classify what are your highest risk workplaces by industry. I think your highest risk workplaces are ones where there are very um, clear hierarchies, very strong hierarchies, and where at the top of the hierarchy there are men in their 50s and 60s predominantly, and at the bottom of the hierarchy are women in their 20s and 30s. That to me is a higher risk workplace, particularly for sexual harassment.
0: And, so, George, does that does that mean that employers? Uh, I mean, assuming that there is a positive duty, does, does that place a, a greater burden on an employer which has got that uh, you know gender misalignment? Is that? I think
1: what? that's the beauty of the duty. The duty will need to be looked at in the context of you know if Morris Blackburn has to um, conform with that. We will look at um, our risk assessment about the whole firm, how we propose to comply with that duty. And that will, I think, be its its beauty. It'll need to be flexible and relevant to each workplace. Each corporation or public sector organisation or NGO or union, whoever it applies to, will need to seriously grapple with actually what are, what are the risk factors in our workplace? How do we reduce that risk? And that has the potential, I think, to be very uh, transformative. Yeah, um,
2: it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. There's, I imagine, Law, Morris Blackburn. I'm sure HSF is looking at it as well. It's a really difficult problem. So even you know, even without the duty, I'm sure we're looking at getting more females in higher positions, and it, it's um, it's difficult to grapple with so to the extent
1: that promotes that thinking. Yeah I agree it's hard it's hard work it's this this is deeply embedded in our culture our structures our society and it's going to be hard yards to to start to change it. I think we're already doing so I think we've already made some difficult positive moves so I think we can do it but it's not going to be straightforward by any stretch and it'll challenge and challenge any organisation which takes that duty seriously. So, um, now to come back to your question, is the are those examples in the courts isolated? I'm dealing, I've dealt with another matter which has already been publicly ventilated in the Federal Circuit Court, and I'm dealing with um, other matters, including in a court in South Australia. So. Um, I'm not sure at what point I say, actually, this isn't isolated, but there are clearly issues um, in the legal profession and the courts, I think, have recognised that there's a lot more, that they have issues and there's a lot more that can be done and many of them are enacting pretty dramatic um, cultural and policy reform.
0: I think it's fascinating um, when you when you look at when was the Kirsty Fraser Kirk case, was that almost a decade ago? Yes, um, with David Jones. I mean, there was a lot of public ridicule um, of, yes. of her um, yes and uh, and uh, also that the, maybe the matter in which it was litigated, some of which it might have been justified as well. But yes. uh, we have come a long way. Uh, I think in, in, in getting this within the public consciousness and a recognition that the issue is a serious one that, that needs to be, to be overcome. But when you focus on the legal profession, we know sexual harassment occurs in a, you know, everywhere. Um, but it might be um, that, I mean, in your case, you've had clearly some, some very well-educated and hopefully empowered uh, clients as victims who have been able to stand up and there must be a lot of uh, women uh, in particular who have experienced sexual harassment who, aren't, who are not similarly empowered uh, or, or financially even able to contemplate getting a, a, you know, beyond a free, one hour free consultation with you, jo- uh, Josh. So, you know, that, that's a real dilemma. So how, how, how do we address, assuming it's a problem that both employers, unions and employees want to solve, how do we solve that problem?
1: So I think... Your point is very well made, and the criticism was made of the Me Too movement, you know, of representing a certain class of of women, white women. Um, and the truth is, our legal system doesn't serve uh, people who are not able to pay lawyers, um, people who are at the you know the lowest part of the labour market in terms of. Um, Earnings, that's a real problem. And so how should that problem be addressed? That's a, that's another inequality problem. Um, well, the obvious institution that should be addressing that is the trade union movement. Um, and I could give you a long diatribe, which your clients won't agree with, about the need for a change to our approach, but um, that's a real problem we have at the moment that... Uh, the, the numbers of people joining unions is is uh, absolutely terrible and uh, we're paying a big price and, and particularly poorer um, migrant women um, probably are, are bearing the brunt of that in terms of underpayment, sexual harassment, bullying and all sorts of other mistreatment. Mm. So, um, so that's one answer to it. I think we need to change our approach to to uh, union membership and give unions a stronger role in those sorts of matters. And secondly, that's also the work of a positive duty on employers. It takes takes some of the burden at the moment on individual women to step up, litigate and go uh, or take a case through, through me or someone else. Um, that gets a lot of public attention. It takes that burden off them. Bearing in mind the lawyers who, the women that I represented in the Dyson Hayden matter, didn't come to me for 12 or 13 years um, because they were so badly impacted and so concerned about Dyson Hayden and his power and the the power of the High Court. So even well-educated women with law degrees, the brightest of our, of their generation, uh, were very fearful for many years before they, you know, one of them made a phone call, a nervous phone call to me. So, um, so the positive duty can do a lot of that work.
2: Mm. And I think um, Tony, I think you'd agree, and you know, Josh, you, you mentioned maybe you don't come across this side of it that often, but I know that some of our clients who are sort of best practice employers are looking at their workplace and 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 saying why aren't I hearing about these sexual harassment complaints and looking at the gender makeup of their organization and putting in place those proactive um, measures even before they have this positive yeah. I mean obviously there's more work to be done but there is a role to play and um, I think we're on the same side of this that you know having these toxic behaviors in the workplace isn't isn't good for business either no.
1: It's not good for anybody. So I suspect you're right. I mean, I suspect your firm's doing it. Our firm's trying to do it. So I think we're already trying to fulfil the requirements of a positive duty. Josh, Uh, um,
0: you you gave me an angle um, because I'm interested in this. Assume, uh, I know I was going to assume you were the Minister for Industrial Relations. Let's just assume a Minister for Industrial Relations in a future Labor government um, listens to what you say and says you need to empower uh, unions, uh, you know, to play a greater role. And and I've read a lot of what you've said in the past about, you know, that, that being the case in relation to industrial relations and enterprise bargaining. But in this case, you're talking about taking a greater role on presumably um, at workplaces and enterprises in relation to sexual harassment. How, how do you do that? How do you legislate for that? Because my argument is, by the way, well, you know, if unions are bloody hopeless, well, they've got themselves to blame. They need to get out there, market themselves, offer the services, and make themselves relevant. And yes. if they can't do that, well, they deserve to be, you know, you know, relics of the past. Yes. But how are you happy with that, or do you want to give them a leg up?
1: No, so I disagree. So um, if you look, if you do a, we're in a bubble in Australia, and we don't quite realise how repressive our legal system is um, particularly repressing union membership. And that's that's a strange thing because once upon a time, Australia had a reputation for encouraging unions, closed shops, preference clauses, lots of strikes in the 70s and so on, and uh, the start of the 80s. And then it started all getting dismantled. And where we've ended up now is, in some very key respects, much more oppressive than even the US. So um, can you imagine, I say provocatively, Anthony, that you were required by law to give away most of your legal representation and services to uh, people who sought those services for free? What would happen to HSF? How many partners would he have after five years of a legal regime like that? That's, That's the the burden that unions now operate under i've i've considered the arguments about is it competence and is it the failure to adapt to new technology and new platforms and so on and done a lot of reading looked around the world and ended up concluding actually no unions only succeed um, in societies where they're part of the institutional fabric and that means they're encouraged, supported, and they have a a defined and almost bipartisan acceptance over their role. So in Nordic countries, for example, that's where you'll find the strongest union membership. In the English-speaking OECD countries like the US, Britain, and Australia in particular, there's been a complete, you know, assault on that and gone in a completely different direction. And we will keep we'll end up with 6% union membership if that continues Um, because it it doesn't actually matter what unions do. They've all tried different organising techniques and they're still trying, you know. Um, Some of them more successful than others and some with more sophistication than others, but it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. So ultimately... um, Unions do need institutional support. They're not-for-profit organisations, and like other not-for-profit organisations, they won't succeed unless there's a degree of goodwill and um, bipartisan support for them succeeding. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's 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 yeah. my view.
0: Well, we'll put that on the side for another debate yeah. on industrial relations reform, maybe sure. the, of the election, because it, it, it probably translates better there. But yeah. well, just in the time in the time available, I want to cut, just deal with a couple of points again back on the, the sexual harassment side and, and uh, get your views on this. Um, if, if an incident occurs at one of our clients. Uh, that our client becomes aware of. Let's assume it's the typical Christmas party scenario. We all know I don't need to explain it more, but it's late at night um, and there's an incident. Uh, our client will come to us and they'll say, look, this, this doesn't look good. We're not sure about it. What will we do? And also, we'll look, first of all, you know, you've heard what uh, the complainant or the victim says. Um, you might have heard from the respondent, and, and he denies it all. In fact, he feels like he's the victim, uh, as is invariably the case. Um, so why don't we uh, investigate this matter? You know where I'm going. And uh, I'll say, well, we, we need to advise you on your, uh, your legal risks and your response to this, and we'll conduct an investigation under legal privilege, and then, um, you know we'll uh, you know we'll make some steps, and in due course, uh, the company will uh, make a decision. It, it may well find that there was conduct that occurred, and the uh, the the victim uh, will hopefully be able to return to work in 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 a situation where she feels uh, safe to do so. Um, But it might well be, as it typically does seem to be, that uh, the relationship breaks down for a whole range of reasons um, without casting any blame anywhere on that. And the the victim will enter into an agreement, uh, I'll call it a non-disclosure agreement, and there might be some payment of compensation. And those compensation payments can vary, you know, a huge spectrum, uh, depending on either potential economic loss or the grievance, uh, you know, the grievousness of the conduct and so on. Um, And then uh, in a couple of years time, uh, the victim wants to talk about it and be public about it and or another incident occurs with the same uh, harasser. Um, So I'm interested in your comments about, first of all, the the approach that the employer is adopting and maybe any criticism or or comments that you would make on the approach that employees are adopting in that that situation. And then maybe talk about the NDA issue.
1: NDAs as well. Sure. So. I've been very critical of the conduct of some workplace investigations in the past, particularly in the private sector. Um, one of the difficulties when you're on my side of the fence is transparency, um, access to the final report, information provision, um, And delay is another issue. Harm to mental health is another issue. There's all sorts of potholes um, that uh, we find with workplace investigations. And um, I think uh, the idea of not having a workplace investigation is often deeply underrated. Sometimes you don't have a choice. But if if there is a, a quicker way to work out what happened and address it, then I encourage people to explore that. If there's denials and it's it's not possible, you may need to go down that path. Um, Having having acted for many and still doing many of these cases, we will continue to demand impartiality and transparency um, and proper access to information and uh, have debates sometimes with various uh, companies and lawyers about those issues, um, and from from time to time challenge the outcome as well. i found the public sector uh, tends to be more consistently reliable in terms of providing natural justice and being more transparent. It's not a guarantee, but I've... I've I've acted for employees accused of misconduct. I had one matter dealt with. Uh, the investigator was uh, Ken Hayne, and he was formidable and made findings against my client. And I have no criticism of him at all. He he was impeccable. So you sometimes get um, very good investigators, uh, particularly in the when you're in public set, sector matters, and the private sector is much more variable. Um, so um, so I think all options should be considered when you have those situations at the Christmas party or otherwise, um, because just bear in mind, often the mental health of the victim declines during the investigation and the accused. Yep. Um, so it's a mental health disaster error in many ways. I don't know the answer to how you eliminate that problem, but it is uh, a real issue that uh, dogs most workplace investigations.
0: Hey, let's well, skip this. So I, I, I want to jump in. So I keep on talking too much. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm glad was. you do because you've always got very interesting, <laughs> but um, points of view that I like to, to debate. Yeah, you know, this is
0: a real <laughs> dilemma for us and for our clients, and, yeah. and no one can. And, and frankly, I don't think Kate Jenkins' report could answer this as well. And 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 it is this question that. Uh, if you take a victim's, I hate the term, but a victim centric approach, which is understand yes. everyone wants to support the victim and, the, and, the, and there's an incident that occurs and, and the victim says, "Look, I want to tell you, you're, you're my employer, Josh, I want to tell you that uh, this conduct happened and Lucy did it, and, but I don't want to make a complaint and I, I want you to respect me because I'm you know, victim centric, I'm the victim, look after me. And of course, the employer is in in a deep pile of shit in that case because they just that they cannot win. They're between a rock and a hard place. Yep. And yep. our advice traditionally has been to say, look, you have obligations not just to the victim but to your whole workforce. If this guy is out there, you know, in, in, you know, behaving badly, you've got to address it. Now, Kate's report um, is a bit equivocal about uh, about that. Um, And I'm really interested in your perspective from from your side of the fence. Well, funnily
1: enough, my perspective is not so different from yours because I think there are just some uh, cases where you can't, you have to say to the person, I actually can't honour that. I'm really glad you discussed it with me, but I can't um, just leave that alone. I actually need to do something about that. And because that's one, that's caused that's right that's caused a lot of harm to you already and secondly i'm concerned about uh that behavior being repeated with other colleagues and so i think there may be cases where you have some discretion where you can um not not go the full you know uh full workplace investigation and not go into overdrive but but there are other cases where you, I don't think you've got a choice.
0: But you have to value the mental health of the victim in those circumstances. You do. What you might do. occur to her, yep. and against the natural justice elements of the uh, of the respondent, um, who you yep. can't just necessarily convict on the basis of no. uh, a hearsay or, or an uncorroborated allegation. It's That's it's it. an absolute dilemma.
1: It is a dilemma, and oh, sorry, Lucy.
2: Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think it's a nuanced approach and I think for those lower levels of inappropriate conduct, it can be more appropriate to deal with them at that lower level, you know, the, the more casual warning or, or, or something along those lines, rather than launching into this uh, workplace investigation, which entrenches parties against each other and uh, can lead to things being blown out of proportion. But I think yeah. particularly in cases where there's an imbalance of power with a senior individual and a, a more junior, then that's never going to lead to a more formal yes, I'm, investigation
1: I agree can I just um, say something about lower level conduct uh, because this comes up in different contexts when we when we talked initially about bullying I didn't I didn't go to this but I will now one of the ways that people can end up saying bullying is nonsense and it's unfounded and it's overblown and it's exactly all these false claims of bullying is if bullying can be any mean behaviour that causes harm. If I walk into the office of my team and say hello to everybody except one person on a Monday, they'll notice that. By the Friday, they'll be starting to really feel upset about it. Another week of that, and they will be unwell, okay? Now, if you want to discredit bullying, what you do is you decontextualize and say, how can not saying hello to someone be bullying? So sometimes I'm wary about the notion of low level and particularly in the context of bullying and also sexual harassment. I don't know whether you saw um, the interview between Laura Tingle and Alex Egerking, my client uh, from the High Court, on the 7.30 report. Yeah. It was incredibly powerful. Um, and very moving, and uh, an extraordinary sort of 10 minutes. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. What she described was basically Dyson Hayden inviting, trying to invite her to dinner, drink with her, and on a false pretext, take her to see his desk in his room. And when she arrived, there was no desk in the room and by, by that time she had been conscious that things may be starting to get out of control um, and uh, by the time she realized there was no desk that was when the alarms went off and she fled. Now that was the third day of her employment and as a High Court associate she felt trapped because what can I do can I walk out how do I explain that to anybody that I've looked out will anyone believe me etc cetera, etc cetera. so she she endured the next 12 months and became hyper vigilant now what he did in some circles when I've been in uh, cases the employers lawyer may say this was low level this was very low level therefore um, you your claim for damages can only be very modest Um With sexual harassment, once the law is contravened, it's really only a question of impact. In that case, the impact of what he did was extraordinarily powerful. So low level can sometimes be a misleading... High consequence, yeah. High consequence, exactly. That's That's a much snappier way of of explaining
0: it. And I don't think our clients would, would disagree with that. I'm, actually, I'm sitting here on my desk and I'm just looking at Rachel Doyle's book on uh, power and consent. Yes. And, um, yeah. I'm sure you've read it. And if yes. any of our clients haven't read it yet, it's only like 60 pages. You can read yes. it on the tram on the way to work. And uh, it's a great book. It describes some of those very, very same yes. symptoms, which is, which is worthwhile. Hey, um, Josh, we're running out of time. You didn't get to the NDA. NDAs. So let, let me say, so so
1: wrapping up NDAs, What's going on, just briefly, because we've been yabbering on too much, I know, but it's fascinating subject matter for us, Um, NDAs are on the way out. That's my experience. And uh, I've been more recently in situations where my client is still struggling in terms of her health and doesn't want any attention and where the employer is now saying we're we're stamping out NDAs. And where I've had to – and I've – I had to catch my breath. And yeah. um, so I've tried to negotiate uh, situations where the identity, my client's identity can be concealed, at least for a time. I try and run a trauma-informed legal practice, and so I'm acutely conscious of those these issues at settlement and right up to settlement. And so I'm against a blanket ban on NDAs. I think we have to be very nuanced about it, and particularly where women are still going through uh, a lot of the impacts and shame and embarrassment and trauma, um, they take some comfort at least for some time uh, while they repair to have anonymity. Yeah, well,
0: it's, 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 again, it's a nuanced issue. We well, see. I know you did a lot when you are in London. Um, you did yeah. on NDAs. I-
2: yeah, so in my, I noticed. I think they're a bit further ahead than we are. So I'd certainly noticed the trend there that you would not touch an NDA in a settlement agreement for a sexual harassment type case. I don't think it's as strong here yeah. um, as we stand. And I think, you know, from uh, there is for employers, is there's, there's you know the, the problems with trial by media and and, and things like that. Um, but I think. Um, yeah, there's a, and and the report, the respective work report was a bit benign on this issue. I think there might be a code of practice coming, but um, I think yeah, time will tell. I noticed Josh actually in your the Dyson Hayden case you worked on. Um, obviously, the identities of the victims were um, publicly known, but the settlement sum was kept confidential. So is that a trend? That, that was that was at the request
1: before? of the Commonwealth. Can I, say, can I say, like um, one of the most powerful things about that experience with Dyson Hayden in acting for the three women, three women are not identified by the way. There were six women found to have suffered sexual harassment. Three have remained um, anonymous. I don't know who they are. They came forward during the investigation. So um, three were okay about ultimately about being identified. But one of those powerful things, a bit like the Orica moment, for me, uh, that I talked about earlier, was when the High Court made clear this was not going to be a confidential outcome, and basically, uh, and then went on the front foot and made a public statement and apology. Now we don't we ha- we don't yet see that happening in the private sector, but the day can't be too far away.
0: Well, I, don't, I think we are seeing that yeah, happen. Had, um, I mean, even in the case of our firm, we've, we've had. Uh, would you believe partners behaving badly? I mean, I think yep. that's been publicised. And I think we're also uh, true. You're right. in that's the true. AFR and some other cases. Now, yep. it might be convenient to suit kind of a, a cultural reset to be able to yep. call that matters out publicly. But yep. I think we're going to see that
1: uh, more, more and often. more. more and
0: Look, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you so much, Josh, uh, for your time Um there, uh, th- this will be a fascinating issue in the lead up to the election and, and certainly the aftermath um, okay. subject so to the outcome. And uh, I know there'll be other issues arising. So uh, I'll take you up on some of the other points about, uh, you know, uh, leg ups to, uh, to unions and, and bargaining. Uh, maybe we can do that another time. But oh, at the fun moment, fun. thank you so much, uh, Josh. Really appreciate your time.
1: No, it's been terrific. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much.